a lot of our listeners are white parents, and many white educators are also parents of white kids. In our book that's coming out in July, Learning and Teaching While White, we discuss some of the fears white parents have in talking about race and also the collective impact white parents are having on education. On this installment of Teaching While White, we'll explore some of the issues facing white parents who take seriously their role in making ours a more just and equitable society. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. I sat down recently with Debbie Irving and Molly Monahan about being white parents of white children. Debbie is the author of the book, Waking Up White. She describes it as the story of her two steps forward, one step back journey away from racial ignorance. Molly is the founder of Social Justice Kids and creator of Love Kids, a course and community centered on deepening the capacity of white parents and educators to co-create a more just and equitable world with and for the kids we love. Debbie Irving lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Molly Monahan outside of Seattle, Washington. I started our conversation by challenging the myth that white kids don't see race unless grown-ups raise the issue. Kids do notice race and have questions. But if we're at the playground or the grocery store and they ask why someone looks different, we say, shush. I was a shusher. And even more than the outward um, somebody would have seen me go, Shh, is I remember the feeling of panic inside. This is Debbie Irving. This would have been when I was in my early 40s and I was in that good person, I'm charitable, um, don't think I have a racist bone in my body, but I just remember the utter panic that would come over me when um, a, a shush moment came up. Grocery store, I know, I know it was at Star Market right around the corner. And, you know, I don't know if it was a question, that person's brown. Why is that person brown? That person's, I know I've heard other people say their, their white children will say, why is that person's skin dirty? I don't remember what the comment was. I do remember, though, um, just being horrified. In the same way I would be horrified if my, one of my kids pointed out, um, I was equally ill-equipped if one of my children pointed out, like body size, uh, disability, anything. I just, I didn't know how to engage in those conversations, to be calm and kind of normalize something in the moment that would, you know, dignify the person who might be in earshot. Uh, it never occurred to me to have a follow-up conversation afterwards. It, I just shut the whole thing down inside myself and within the relationship. And I thought that that was the right way to proceed. And Molly, were you ever a shusher or you started from the beginning? I know your kids are a lot younger. Yeah, for sure. I was a shusher and I was shushed. And it's interesting that you're bringing this up first because it is a really big topic for us in the course that I teach. We, we have a name for it. We call it the shush and run. <laughs> sort of like shush and let's never revisit this again. Let's get as far away as we possibly can. So, yeah, I think that's part of it, right, is that it's this generational passing on of the shushing that ultimately is part of the maintaining of racism, right? Because if we can't talk about it, then nothing is going to change. But for sure, for sure, I, I was a shusher and for sure I'm still battling 
a, I don't know, sort of in my bones, right? So it's this um, active pushing against that, almost an instinct to shush now. But I do have some practices that, some things that I have practiced, you know, learned over the years and practiced to sort of shift that if you want to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So now when I feel myself wanting to shush, I've gotten better about sort of noticing when that was rising up in me and just sort of saying, okay, take a deep breath because whatever I shush will be interpreted by my kids as bad or wrong or something that we shouldn't be talking about. And then I'm sort of passing on that generational silence. And instead I say something like, thank you for noticing. Thank you for noticing her beautiful brown skin. Thank you for noticing something about them. How beautiful. Hmm. And then the other thing that I do that I find really helpful, at least to me, is knowing that the conversation is never over, particularly with my own kids. I get a whole lifetime with them. And I, I call that the circle back. You know, there's always, and, and even if I messed up, even if, isn't that funny? Every time I mess up. <laughs> yeah, it's not an if, it's a when. Then I know that I can sort of take a step back and process and come back to them and say like, oh, mommy, mommy did not come to that conversation as well as I wanted to. I've got some new thinking. Do you? Mm. You know, and what have you been thinking about since then, since we talked about that last? So mm. I think those are a couple of tools that I certainly was not equipped with as a child. And I certainly was not equipped with as an adult. And I just sort of had to figure out along the way. I think I knew not to shush, but I didn't know what to do instead. So I would just get sort of loud and be like, yep, he's brown and this is pink and this is yellow. And let's what's over here. And just sort of, it was simply a, a tactic not to shush, but not to actually address what was going on. We talk about this a hundred different ways, a hundred different times. Why is it important to be talking to our kids about race? Well, I think, you know, Molly alluded to it earlier is if you don't talk about something, you can't learn about something. I mean, I don't care if you're talking about how to make a lasagna or learn a new instrument or learn your family history. If you don't talk about it, it, it doesn't get into your consciousness. You don't develop the vocabulary. It, and you know, it creates a, a information vacuum. And when there are information vacuums, we fill it with all kinds of stuff. And there's so many messages out there that white people are superior, white people belong more, um, white people are, are dominant when any of our kids are looking at media, magazines, you know, video games, anything. And so if we aren't uh, adding content that they're not getting in mainstream, then they are at risk for absorbing without wanting to, without meaning to, ideas about all of the entwined social hierarchies within white supremacy. So not just racism, but sexism and homophobism and looksism and ableism, all of those things. Molly, what would you add to that? Yeah. So I think what Debbie is getting at is this 
sort of sense of how are they internalizing the world? How are they making sense of the world as it's being presented to them? And that is so important. I would just agree with um, helping them make meaning. We know that if left to their own devices, kids, right? Like kids are hardwired for fairness. Kids are hardwired for justice. Kids, you know, what are, what, what are some of the first words we hear from our kids, right? When they're able to engage with the world is that's not fair. And so we know that they're hardwired for fairness and that they generally think that the world is set up in a fair way. And if we don't trouble over that with them, then they're left thinking that the way things are in the world has been earned and justified. And so for us to be able to say, actually, there are some things that are really unfair. Um, one of the one of the phrases that I use with my kids is because I think sometimes we do have this sort of this conversation around like folks who don't look like us have less than us. But I think also adding to that conversation, like we've been given extras. So that's a phrase that we use sometimes. We've been given extras that we didn't maybe earn. And then the other thing that I think about a lot too, is that if we don't equip our kids with the language to talk about race and social identities. So whether that's racial identities like black or African-American or white or Asian or, right, if we don't help our kids learn and practice these words, if we don't um, help our kids learn and practice just different skin tone colors, right, peachy or brown or amber or sienna or Right, all of these wonderful words that that represent such a wide range of skin tones, then we are also robbing them of an opportunity to be a part of creating a more just and equitable world. So there's this sense of wanting to help them see the injustices in the world not shush the conversation, but engage in the conversation, but then also take that conversation a step further toward what can we do about it? Who can we partner with? Who's already doing great work out there that we can say, I want to, I want to be part of this too. Um, Cause goodness knows we aren't the first ones <laughs> on the scene. Um, yeah. I know you and Molly spoke before about the different ways you've parented and your kids are a little older than mine and mine are older than Molly's. Um, can you think of a particular time where you feel like you really messed up and you like you cringe when you think about it? Can you think of a particular moment or just is it a collective just sense of yuck? The first moment that comes to mind is actually one that I include in the book and it was my uh my daughter was in the third grade 
and my kids went to a public school right on the street that I live on. I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So the school was, you know, I don't know, 50% white, 50% kids of color, predominantly black within that kids of color range. And I walked down the street every afternoon to pick up my kids, you know, drop them off in the morning and pick them up in the afternoon. And every afternoon there would be this huge, you know, swarm of white parents at the back door of the school, picking up our kids and taking them off to, you know, extracurriculars or bringing them off on play dates. And there were some minor um, exceptions to this rule that I'm describing, this pattern I'm describing, but it was overwhelmingly what I'm describing true along the color line. And in the front of the school was this mass exodus of kids of colors onto these big school buses being transported to different parts of of Cambridge. And so one day, one night, we, my daughter and I were doing dishes together, standing at the sink side by side, and she got a little closer to me than she normally does. And she said, Mom, why do all of uh, the black kids get to school on, on buses and the white moms pick us all up? And I remember my hands just like freezing with what I was doing. And I said to her, I have no idea in that tone. Like, I have no idea. And that's all I said. So that that's not the shush and run as much as it's the massive lost opportunity and run. What I wish I had said is, what a fantastic observation and what a good question, Emily. I now that you mention it, I see the same thing, but I haven't thought about it as deeply as you. And I don't know how to answer that in this moment because I haven't really thought about it as deeply as you, but let's figure it out. And again, never revisited it. (laughs) And also never thought deeply. I didn't even go off on my own. That's what bothers me the most. She handed me a jewel of a learning opportunity a jewel of a challenge because, you know, in the same way Molly is saying our kids are wired for fairness. She was observing something that I had become immune to because I had normalized it. I really dropped the ball. Yeah. I feel a little nauseated right now sharing this story. (laughs) Molly, do you have one that comes to mind? Please share. I know there are so many and What's coming to mind for me is one from my own childhood. Is it okay to share that? Sure. So I remember as a child, I went to a predominantly white suburban elementary school um, in a suburb north of Detroit, and there was one black girl in my class. And all of us in the elementary school at the time were being recruited to play orphans in the high school production of Annie. And so it was sort of this buzz on the playground, right? We were all very excited to be in the play and alongside high schoolers and all of this. And we didn't quite understand that we weren't going to be the extras. (laughs) We thought that we would be the stars of the show. And um, the one black girl in my class said, I'm going to be Annie. 
And I said, you can't be Annie because you're black. And I hate this story. I hate that I did that. And I remember, I think this little girl said something to me like, I can be anything I want to be. And sort of stormed off and got a teacher, as she should. And she was right. She can be whatever she wants to be, of course. And she got a teacher and I got in trouble. And that was it. Right. So describe when you got in trouble. Did you understand why you were getting in trouble? No. I mean, that's my point, right? That no one explained anything to me. It was sort of a shush and run. It was sort of bad Molly. No. And that's it. And I don't know if they told my parents, but if they did, my parents didn't process it with me either. And then now as an adult, the other piece that comes to mind for me is how did they process with her? How did they process with her family? I don't know. But if they were so ill-equipped to talk to me, I can only imagine what that looked like. And again, is just repeated each generation. You know, teacher prep programs aren't talking about this stuff. Certainly parenting groups and, you know, there's a little bit of information out there now for white parents, but it still is, we have to find the needle in the haystack. And so, yeah, so I was left with that. And I'm sure any number of other things that I said and did that I didn't understand and until I was much later in life and started exploring this stuff as an adult. For me, it was when I got to college that I really started getting a fuller understanding of sort of whiteness and race and things like that. But that brings back perfectly why we need to be talking about race, right? And in my experiences in schools, kids are being, I won't even say held accountable, but they'll get in trouble, but they've never been explained the reasons we don't say certain words or these are terms we no longer use. There's very little education around it. And yet kids are being shushed um, at school too, not just by their parents. Oh, can I add in a story here? Please. So this is from my experience as a classroom teacher. So I was an assistant teacher in a second grade classroom and the lead teacher is, will always be my favorite teacher I was ever partnered with. Um, she was young. She was in her mid-20s. And she was so advanced in comparison to everybody else at the school in terms of willingness to um, talk about race openly. Was she white, Debbie? She was this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pretty little white girl. Just looked like she stepped out of a catalog. And she was... She was fierce in the most loving way. And so one of the uh, girls in our class, who was a, a black girl, came crying. Or we were having, you know, everyone's supposed to be doing their own independent work. And she came over to us crying, just sobbing, and said that one of the white girls, I'm not using names here, but one of the white girls had just said that I can't play with you because you're black. And I... I like stood up 
and puffed up and I wanted to like go over to that white girl and, you know, give her a talking to. And, and my coworker said, Hmm, does that make sense to you? And she said, no, it doesn't make any sense to me. And she, she said, I'm really sorry that, that, that would hurt my feelings if someone said something like that to me. And I would like to go talk to this, this girl. And is there anything you want me to say or do, um, how do you feel about me going to talk to her right now? And so she, I was blown away, A, that she didn't lose her, you know, stuff the way I just was ready to unleash and what, you know, my impulse would have been to, to go punish, you know, give her a timeout or something, you know, exactly what we're saying is teachers do that is not useful. And very calmly, the teacher took the offender uh, for a walk in the hallways and they had a talk and uh, she reported to me later that she said, you know, tell me more about that comment. You know, where, where did you learn that? And she reported home. My mother told me this and sort of like everybody knows that that was sort of her attitude. And I think that, um, the lead teacher put the two of them together for some kind of a restorative moment. But as we're having this conversation, I'm realizing that what we didn't do was go to either parent. We never followed up with that white mother. It was a single mother. And um, again, I'm looking at this in this moment thinking, what a lost opportunity. And we didn't go to the mother of the black girl and say, this happened. We are so sorry it happened in our classroom. We want to do better. We need to do better. We want you to know we have your daughter's back. Or just replayed exactly how the whole thing had played out. You know, because who knows if either kid ever talked about it at home. So another version of the shush and run, even though I saw it as so positive, it, but it was missing that final piece. Of looping the parents in. think of all the parents I talk to, how often I hear, I mean, it's sort of what we're seeing nationally. I don't want to upset my children. They're too young to understand um, such great injustice, or I'm going to say it wrong. So, and I'll make things worse and draw things to her attention that she wouldn't notice otherwise. Those kinds of things. Do those resonate with either of you? Oh, yeah. I think that's part of the issue, right? Is that, um, particularly as white women, perfectionism is central to how we are taught to show up in the world. And if we can't show up perfectly, then we will just do something else, something else that we can do perfectly. And because we've never had good examples for how to do this work, with the kids we love and because we have such a such a need to be perfect and a fear of failure it's sort of like either or on the extremes when reality is that it's probably not going to be a complete failure and it's not going to be totally perfect it's just going to be messy and an opportunity for the next conversation 
And this piece that you're bringing up though, Jenna, about um, making our kids feel bad. This is something I'm thinking so much about lately because I, we have conversations. I have two white kids. We have conversations all the time about race and racism and injustice and what we can do about it and um, what our role is, you know, that also, you know, the whole conversation about we've been given extras. How do we, how do we share right? some of these conversations as well? My kids don't feel bad. They feel empowered and driven further to figure out how they can play a greater role in making the world a better place. Not in a white savior way either, I should say, but in a, I don't want to be silent about this. What can I do? What can I do? Yeah, I think, um, and Debbie, I'd love to have you weigh in on this too. I think I was, I think of teachers who are in this stage of their awareness and development who, you know, they feel like it's their job to bust everybody's bubbles and let me tell you how it really is. And you've been, you know, sheltered and isolated. So I'm going to tell you about reality. I think that's what I did with my kids. And it, you know, it started with cartoons. Like, I wonder why all the kids in this playground are white. Do you think that that's true? But it wasn't in a really inquisitive kind of tone. It was like, this show is garbage because let me explain, you know, and I think that sort of energy and that anger or that like, oh, this, I need to tell the world what's real. Um, I think that energy came through loud and clear. And I do think my kids grappled with feeling guilty later on, you know, they got past that. I, I think the energy behind how you have these discussions really matter because what I was saying maybe was right or, you know, I'm really curious. And I, I joke about this in my trainings all the time. It's like, I'm just really curious why you would say something like that when clearly I'm not curious at all. Right. And that same kind of energy came through with my kids, I think. Yeah. And that is the example that I saw in, in uh, my coworker who sat so quietly and, and gave so much space for the young person standing in front of her. And I, and I know she did the same thing for the white girl in the hallway, just gave her a lot of space to think out loud and start to make meaning of it. I think now I always want to make uh, connections between what's happening, what happens in our micro worlds within us and in our relationships and how uh, it's playing out at a large scale. So Molly, when Molly's talking about, you know, I think we just, we, we want to look perfect and uh, that's what we know and that's what we've been trained to do. And so uh, when we can't, when we stumble into something that we don't quite know how to navigate, it's going to get messy. We're not going to, we might fail. We might bumble. We'll go to something that we do do well. That's happening at the macro level. That's how we got into this mess because as a country, uh, and I'm just going to keep this within the boundaries of the United States as opposed to global white supremacy, but as a country in the United States, we can't have this conversation because we don't know how to do it well. And we've been telling everybody we're the best, we're the freest, fairest country in the world. And so how it's an identity shift for the country. And, um, and I think that we all pick that up all the time. 
And, and we can say, I hate the way the country does that. And then you know, we can still do it ourselves because we've all been in these waters. And so um, I am such a fan of normalizing imperfection. And, you know, I, I just love, Molly, that you shared that incredibly vulnerable story from your own childhood. And I, I actually really teared up um, and my heart pounded as you told it. And I think that people of color in the world don't have to hear our horrible stories, but we need to tell them to each other. Um, because I think that's one of the way we start to break down this idea that we are we are now and forever perfect. Like we're we're this immovable perfection block when in fact we're works in progress. And the more humility we can bring to our um, in progressness, the more progress we make. I mean, there's a real irony to per to the idea of perfection. There's no faster way to be imperfect than to say you're perfect and believe you are. <laughs> oh my gosh, that piece about humility—it's just so central to me. It's liberating. It's liberating to be able to get into a space where you can say, I don't know. I need to learn more about that. Or I did this thing that I am very ashamed of. Let me grapple with that and figure out how to apologize and how to do better, how to do that from a place of real, genuine sincerity and not not do that thing where we spin out into like our own personal PR campaign or something, right? Where we're like trying to convince everybody how great we are, you know, to your point, Debbie, about the macro and the micro, our country and ourselves, like how much better off would we all be if we could walk through the world saying, I am messy and imperfect, and I am just trying to learn and do better. I think that plays into, in both teachers and parents, right, this idea that adults are supposed to have all the answers. And I know when I was a teacher, I would get really nervous when a student would ask me something I didn't know, you know, and I thought it meant that I wasn't a good teacher if I didn't have the answer, and how much that is driven into us as parents and as educators. Can I share another tool, Jenna? Please. So this is another one that I like to have in my back pocket too. And um, when kids, in those moments, right, that you're talking about in terms of when you were a teacher and child would ask you a question that you didn't know the answer to, this is not mine. It comes from lots of different places and, and has lots of different iterations, but essentially it's um, head, heart, hands. And when we, so, and I hear it echoed in Debbie's story, Debbie's mentor teacher um, really did, um, I think, head and heart really well and hands in terms of bringing the kids together, right? So um, just to quickly explain, when a child comes and has a, a difficult question for us, um, instead of freaking out in our perfectionism and thinking that we're terrible people because we don't have all of the answers, we can ask children, so head, 
what do we know and how do we know it? So we ask a child, what do you know about that? And how do you know it? Did you hear it on the news? Did you hear it on the playground? What is the source, right? There might be a, maybe a broader way for us to get some information about what you're curious about right now. And maybe I know a little bit too. Maybe we can share with each other what we know and how we know it. And oftentimes that's where we'll stop as grown-ups. We'll just stop at the sort of like lecture or conversation place. So I really want us to get out of a lecture place and go into a curiosity place and a conversation place. Then instead of stopping there, I love for us to go into, as Debbie's mentor teacher did, how do we feel about it? How does that make you feel? Here's how it makes me feel. And really just humanize, get into our bodies about this stuff. Let's stop trying to intellectualize and distance ourselves from these very human problems. And then it would be a real disservice, a real injustice if we didn't enter into conversation. So this is, so that was head and heart, heart and then hands is what can we do about it? And kids, and we don't need to have the answers to this either. Kids, creativity around justice is boundless. And so if we get out of their way, they have the answers already inside their bodies and hearts and minds. And our role as grown-ups then is just to like open the door that might be closed to them because they are a child in our society, but then just open the door and say like, yeah, let's try that. Um, so that's head, heart, hands. parenting our own kids a little bit. I don't know, was there a breakthrough moment, Debbie? And how old were your kids when you felt like you could have conversations that were productive with your kids about race? Well, my waking up process didn't begin until I was 48. And I always have to throw in there, I had been on diversity committees, even chaired one for 25 years before I turned 48. So I thought I knew what I was doing. Um, so my waking up process began in earnest, uh, with a graduate school course. And that was when I started to realize how backwards I had the whole thing. And, and I wanted desperately, I mean, there was this one exercise uh, in this graduate school course. It was on the first day. How many, how often do you speak about race? And the choices were like every day. Uh, a couple times a week, a couple times a month, a couple times a year, less than once a year. And I checked off less than once a year. And every person of color in that class checked off every day. And that was, um, you know, one uh, put me on alert that, uh-oh, like it, you are supposed to, you have to talk about it. And so my kids at that time were 12 and 15. 
So they're just entering developmentally their teenage years when they're supposed to be separating from me and thinking I'm the biggest goofball on the planet. And so there's a real tension to, you know, do, how do I introduce this conversation um, when I was still very caught in my white training to push and lecture, which of course alienated them at a time where they were developmentally primed to be alienated. And so it was really, really awkward. And um, a lot of times I chose not to talk about it. A lot of times I just, I always made sure that there were articles and things around the house. And if they ever brought anything up, I would follow their lead. Um, and, and I think, you know, if for people who've read my book, you notice that all I do is I tell my own story because I started to realize in my own family that when I told my own stories about what I was learning, what I was experiencing, they listened. And they also would say like, I mean, of course I, I was just obsessed. I still kind of am like my family's just like, can we please talk about something else? And so I'll never know. Uh, I'll never know if it could have looked differently through the teenage years, because that's the only mother of teenagers um, while waking up life I'll ever have. <laughs> what about you two? I started um, my career in higher education. And, you know, in higher education, there's a real emphasis on yeah, equity and inclusion work. And so I had spent a certain amount of time as a professional working with college students doing different, you know, kinds of social justice work. But then it wasn't until I had my older child, who is now 12, about to be 13, that I really felt like, oh, I have no idea how to do this with you, which was not really true. Actually, it was a story that I was telling myself, um, probably rooted in perfection and fear, fear of failure. Um, but it did throw me into, you know, as an academic, <laughs> it threw me into this sort of like deep dive into literature and courses and all the things that I could learn to figure out how to do better. And so that's when I really started shifting. And, and the interesting thing, I should say, the connection between me and Debbie, you know, Debbie and I met at a conference after Debbie had seen my session about, um, you know, how to talk about race with the kids you love, really centering the conversation around white grownups. And we, we had a conversation the next day at the conference and Debbie, you can share your side of it a little bit better than I can. Yeah, I, I, I pulled you aside and I said, thank you so much for your workshop. And I have to be honest and let you know that it was really hard for me. I, I left really sad that I, because Molly gave a lot of examples about her own children and, and the, kinds of, the, the kinds of conversations they're having, the kinds of things they're doing. And I said, and I just, I missed that window. I didn't wake up soon enough. I'll never get that window back. And then Molly said to me, So while you might feel like your waking up was too late 
for your kids or miss the window or the language that you're using. Um, it was right on time for me and it helped me become the person who could share the stories that had that impact on you. Um, and now my kids are benefiting from your work and they will be able to be in a different place as an adult because of you. And so this was the piece, right? This is where we connected. And this is what I think is so powerful about white women having this conversation together, particularly white mothers intergenerationally having this conversation together. So that I think was, I don't know, for me, it was a really powerful moment. Yeah, it was, it was for me too. And I think, you know, this morning I was making my coffee. I was thinking, you know, what we might talk about today. And I started thinking about my own kids and what do I mean when I say Mr. Window and um, I will say that my children who are now in their mid twenties are, oh my God, so much more awake and informed than I was in my mid twenties. Um, they're not active anti-racists. Um, and I'm not sure they would have been, you know, not everybody is, 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 um, drawn to this work and you have to be drawn to it to do it at the level we do it. Um, and I, and I started thinking, well, what would be my greatest hope? My greatest hope for my children would be that if, uh, not just see something, say something, but if a person of color or another white person points out something to them, a way they are showing up that is harmful, I would hope that they would know that in that moment they're being given an opportunity and to listen and grow. Um, and I'm going to share that with them uh, tonight because I, I haven't really thought, well, what is it? What, what do I think I missed? And I, I think that that's the thing um, that we didn't do well in our home on any in any area, um, when our kids were young, you know, they were being raised in this East coast, high pressure, look good, look smart environment. But boy, were we taking, were we taking Christmas presents to the homeless shelter and giving part of our allowance to a charity of your choice? Molly, what, what, what is success for your kids? I love Debbie's definition for her. Do you, do you have a, a thought of what success would look like with your own kids? I think for me, it is, yes, absolutely. Um, in alignment with Debbie is saying the, the piece around humility and an openness to hearing that the way they might be showing up in the world in a particular moment may have caused harm and to be able to receive that as a gift because it really is such a gift that is not given to most white folks. Most white folks are written off as, and, and for good reason, right? As you are not going to receive this and so I'm not going to give it to you. So that the piece around humility is huge for me. 
And then the other piece is an internal compass around justice. So having enough of an awareness of the world, having layered in all of those pieces that we think are important, right? Having language around race and and an awareness of how whiteness shows up in that conversation and in that experience, um, being able to recognize patterns of injustice, also patterns of beauty that are present in a racialized way, um, and then knowing that they can do something about it. But I think the the real core of that for me is that it's internalized, that that is sort of like in their bones and not something that I am nudging them to do. And I think that they both are demonstrating that in their 12-year-old and 6-year-old ways right now. So, <laughs> and... I'm sure there's plenty of messy moments in our future and plenty of really painful and, and challenging moments in our future. And just are we ready to meet that with humility and an openness to learning and doing better? That's, that's it. That's it for me. This idea that kids will only feel guilty does not give them enough credit. Young people can understand and grapple with complexity if we give them the tools they need. To remain silent, to not speak with our kids about race or to shush and run is to support the status quo. When we give kids the language and framework they need, they have so many of the answers for themselves. And as Debbie reminds us, humility is the key ingredient. I also think it's worth saying that uh, I don't know any parent who's honest with themselves who doesn't wish they might have done things differently. And I think some of the humility that we have the opportunity to learn in an anti-racism mindset heart space um, is humility that can carry over to the way we parent in whatever the landscape, whatever the context. Because these kids hopefully are our kids forever, as Molly said. We'll be having these conversations forever. Our families are works in progress, just as we all are. That was Debbie Irving social justice educator, and Molly Monahan of Social Justice Kids. They say I'm white. What does that mean? Thoughtless peach or cream or sandy like the beach. They say I'm white. What does that mean? What does that mean? Before we go, we want to share some music with you. This is City Love. They describe their children's album, World of Love, as a culmination of our hopes and dreams for the next generation and a musical vaccination against bigotry and hatred. We've linked some resources for talking about race with young people, including City Love, and we will be talking with them about their music in an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Stephen Smith. Our theme music was written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. 
And this is Teaching Wild White. Wild White.